HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Heritage Radio Network studio is currently closed, so my guests and I are coming to you from our respective homes in Brooklyn, which is why this may sound a bit different than usual. This episode, we're talking about loneliness. Loneliness versus solitude versus self-isolation. My first guest, author, editor, and critic Malcolm Harris, and I discuss what it's like to be young in America today. How obsession with productiveness and our human capital has us feeling perpetually burnt out, anxious, and lonely. During the latter half, I speak to Julia Bainbridge, writer, editor, and fellow podcaster. Her show, The Lonely Hour, explores loneliness and solitude, not as states to fix or escape, but ones to inhabit fearlessly and learn from. Because of the coronavirus-induced self-isolation, we're all getting into a habit of being alone, which is something Julia worries is dangerous for a species that's hardwired for connection. Hey, Malcolm, where are you recording from? Right, I'm, I'm in my bedroom, which is where I normally record from anyway, so... Here in uh, <laughs> South Philly. Okay. And um, I was asking G- our engineer this before. Are there any like new hobbies that you've taken up? Um, any latent tendencies that have arisen during this time? No, no. Unfortunately, my life is much as it is before, except without all like the nice parts of interacting with other people and going places. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are today, including the court case, living in a $400 closet, all of it? Well, I think it is, I mean, it feels like a lucky story to me because it's one that not a lot of people end up getting to do, Uh, which is when I graduated from college, it was in the midst of a chaotic economic situation. I mean, this was 2010 I graduated. So we had just gone through the the housing bubble collapse. Um, I gotten my first job out of college was on Craigslist, I just like went off and tried to find a job writing something somehow, somewhere. Um, and I got a job that paid, I think it was 1200 bucks a month, writing blog posts about the, uh, the sharing economy, which was at the time the idea that like Uber and Couchsurfing shared something in common as categories of human interaction. Um, 
And so I was writing on my blog as people wrote on their blogs back in 2010, uh, looking for somewhere to like put my voice out there, I guess, uh, to, to work. Um, yeah. So I ended up moving to New York because I sent some blog posts I'd written to what I thought was a real magazine. And it turned out to be like three people behind a Tumblr, uh, that was called the new inquiry. And I moved out to New York. I lived in the editor's extra room for 400 bucks a month, still doing my, uh, Craigslist sharing economy work. Um, and that's how I started working like in media in New York writing. And I don't think that's like that common a story, but I guess that's how it worked out for me. Mm-hmm. So that's actually funny to be on the, the front end or the, the, I guess the first wave of thinking about the sharing economy, which feels kind of like how everything is run nowadays um, or how everything is centered around. And so can you talk about how like your view or your understanding of it has shifted? Are you now past, are you jaded? Are you cynical? Um, Yeah. What are your feelings about it? Well, I was always on the more cynical jaded end, I guess, of that ecosystem to begin with. I mean, it was my job out of college, right? It was like, that was who was hiring writers. And so that's where I got a job that seemed like progressive. And again, the idea was behind even something like Uber was that if we were sharing cars, there'd be fewer cars on the road. If we shared car time, you know, you'd need fewer cars. This was the logic of the sharing economy as it was originally introduced. You know, 10 years later, we've had Uber on the the road. They've gotten to, you know, transform our entire urban infrastructure and we have more cars. Um, So this like this view of what the sharing economy was supposed to do, that we were going to share resources and therefore we'd need fewer of them. Therefore we'd exploit fewer of them uh, has turned out not to be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I almost feel like that must not have been the intention. Um, I'm, I'm now thinking of your essay for eater, on salt, fat, acid, heat as Marxist fantasy porn and how there's also there this illusion or hope for less efficiency, but that's not really the reality. So actually let's um, back up a little bit. Can you give a brief summary of that article and why you think we're so attracted to that show? I mean, yeah, like we were saying, it feels like it was written in a whole other uh, epoch, but that show was about looking at different traditional forms of food production throughout the world. And I think why people found it so comforting at the time was that it spoke to, you know, chains of food production of community reproduction that didn't involve commodities that didn't involve exploitation um, that we don't have access to anymore. And so it evokes this sort of fantasy of belonging to these these communities that reproduce themselves outside of commodities. Um, so what do you think is the, the common thread here? Um, you know, not only from the book to or our interest in the show to the proliferation of stuff like Uber, but even. Yeah, let's start there. Well, I mean, it's all about our historical moment, right? This is at a time where immense capacity has not yielded the 
the benefits that are supposed to be sort of like widely distributed in the way that they were supposed in the way that we thought they were going to be even like very, very recently thought they were going to be. And so the food infrastructure isn't something that I like write about a lot. Right. Uh, we started talking because of this one article I wrote that was about this vision of what food production looks like outside of commodities, right? And this is like Netflix put this on TV because they wanted us to see um, this because we, we, we want that. We want to be able to like, you know, produce things in a way that's inefficient because it's better. It yields better products. Uh, we don't feel like we're wasting our life and we're selling it to someone else because that's literally what we're doing every day uh, under commodity production. So it's actually like a really complex argument that we end up like facing in this Netflix series, I guess. That was what I was trying to get across in that piece that I wrote like two years ago, I guess now. Mm-hmm. Right, like the tension of producing it like that um, versus the actual, I guess, meaning or the the kind of kernel of truth that we're meant to look at. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, and as we can see right now, it's we have a totally different vantage point on commodity production right now, right? Like how much of our economy is functioning, like 85% they say allegedly, and yet we're all staying home. Um, Yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. Maybe before we get into that, let's also talk about kids these days, your first book. Um, The thesis basically being that, we're always burned out, perpetually panicking because. Um, well, the thesis of the book is that over the 30 to 40 years in America, childhood has changed to be geared toward the production of what's called human capital, which is the abilities that we put to work when we are at work uh, producing for someone else. And so instead of the, the traditional American version of childhood as a time where the stakes are lower, where you make mistakes, where you're not working. Uh, we have a shifting to a childhood where the stakes are very high. The mistakes that you make are really consequential for kids and where they're working all the time. And the consequence of that was supposed to be, we were told, right, that people were going to get better jobs, that they were working so hard at school, that they were spending their time as kids investing in their educational abilities so that they can get better jobs. Now we're, we're here, we're adults, those better jobs aren't there. And so that, that was the thesis of the first book. Mm-hmm. So I actually, why is it not that, you know, if we are such hardworking and productive children, why is it that we're feeling more anxious now? Shouldn't we be at least a little number or better prepared for those anxieties? Um, well, in some ways we are right. Uh, the one of the craziest stats in that first book is that the anxiety and depression levels for the average kid um, from the millennial cohort was the same as a, a psychiatric patient three cohort three cohorts before for a young person, right? So they measure psychiatric well-being over time, and it has seen a steep decline in psychiatric well-being among young people. Uh, so there are there are like there's a base level of well-being that we have to try to provide for children 
that we're not at a psychological level and we're, we're, we're failing to do that. Mm-hmm. And so symptoms of this are we feel always burned out, um, that we're perpetually panicking and that we always feel like we're lacking something. And I think, um, how, how might you say this feeling of lack might lead to perpetually feeling lonely? Yeah. Uh, well, people have less time to spend on, on things that are rewarding, including friendship, um, unstructured time with people that matter to them on a non-business level. It gets back to what we're talking about in terms of commodity production, right? It's like, can you spend time cooking with your friends for yourselves, or do you have to spend your time like cooking for other people at a job? These are different ways of being involved in this process of making food, uh, but they have totally different affective experiences, right? One is really, really beautiful. It's like the nicest thing you can do in the world. And one is really, really, really awful. Like they have to pay you money to do it. That's what the whole show, the salt, fat, acid, heat was all about food as this way of accessing different forms of community life that aren't based around community or commodity production. Mm -hmm. And so for community life that isn't based around commodity production, which is like, you know, the exploitation of people's time to produce stuff that is used up. um, Community outside of that is so much around food, right? It's so much around the reproduction of society. Uh, And it's appealing even to just watch on television. So just the act of watching a guy like stir his giant vat of soy sauce is really appealing to us as like alienated Western workers, because the idea of relating to the, even just the objects around you, not through alienation is appealing. Of course, we have to access this through some like Netflix show. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And I would almost argue that the exact same thing is happening now from our hyper consumption of, you know, culture, quote unquote, um, during this quarantine time, I feel like we're, you know, everyone's now very into home cooking, or at least watching videos of home cooking. Um, And how do you think those forms of consumption, how do they satiate us? What are they feeding us? Well, it's hard, because I think on some levels, there are things that people are really appreciating about having to rely on themselves to cook for themselves, right? Having to, uh, for some people who have not had to produce their own uh, meals before, having to do so now. We shouldn't confuse that with some sort of like structural trend towards justice that's happening right now, because it's not. What we're seeing is the continuation of pre-existing problems within our social system. So we shouldn't think that like, oh, now we're all going to like get back to the land or everyone's making their own bread now. Uh, Nature's healing itself or whatever, you know. Let's get back to um, things we turn to to kind of numb this loneliness. Yeah, I guess over time, your relationship to food changes and relationship to ingredients, which ultimately is about your like, relationship to the world outside yourself. Um, So having people rethink that is good. Having people think about what their reliance is on the global food infrastructure 
in ways maybe they haven't before. Uh, I think that's like a positive development. Like cooking for yourself is great. I hope more people are learning to cook for themselves. Um, but more important than that maybe is seeing themselves as part of a like larger society and these larger fragile systems that could exist in totally different ways than they exist now. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at TotalFood.com. Julia Bainbridge is a writer, editor, and soon-to-be cookbook author whose work can be found in Allure, Bon Appetit, Food & Wine, Playboy, Tea Magazine, The Washington Post, among others. And she also hosts a podcast. In her show, The Lonely Hour, she and her guests share their experiences with loneliness and solitude, and through it makes us lonely folk feel a little less alone. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks for having me. You know that um, cookbook very well, don't you? (laughs) Oh, man. It it feels like a forever, forever lifetime ago. I feel like we should tell people, though, that you were my um, you were my research associate and recipe tester. I was I was her minion. (laughs) (laughs) You're a driving force behind its creation. And the book is called Good Drinks. And the drinks in it are good in large part thanks to Carl's um, recipe testing and help. So thank you for that. I actually, um, I actually made the chili shrub a few weeks ago. Yeah, I love that one. Mm-hmm. How did anyway, it go? Did oh, it was it was it? good. Yeah, um, we because we're at home a lot. Um, it's just like, and there's no activities. It's kind of like, all right, I guess we're going to make a cocktail now. But we've been replacing it with like non-alcoholic, clever drinks, and that was a, like a really a really good one, really tasty one. Yay! Good. Mm-hmm. So um, back to the pod. Um, The Lonely Hour is a podcast that explores loneliness and solitude. And through the past few seasons, how have you come to understand the difference between the two? Well, let's see. There's a difference between three things, I guess, if we if we parse it out. So there's there's aloneness, which is a state, right? Um, Aloneness or isolation. That's like an objective measure of how many people we have around us. Loneliness is subjective, right? It's a feeling, um, a feeling that we don't have enough social connection in our life. It has to do with perception. So I'm really influenced by the work of the late John Cacioppo. He was the director for the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Chicago, and he had been studying the effects and causes of loneliness for over two decades. And according to him, loneliness refers to the perception that one's social relationships are inadequate in light of one's preferences for social involvement, right? So like in his studies, introverts um, show none of the health risk factors that married persons with perceived isolation showed. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and loneliness shows up in all sorts of situations. There's the loneliness you can feel because you're on a, your own a lot, and that's not what you want to be the case. Um, 
there's also the loneliness you can feel in a relationship because you feel misunderstood or, or even not seen. So I would say I've come to understand loneliness as like a sense of being unmoored, unanchored, kind of not belonging and the sense that you won't be kind of found by the world in the way you want to be found. Um, and then solitude, which I see as having a more positive connotation, you know, people seek solitude, right? It can be a recharging time. It's, it's a feeling of being, uh, comfortable and even joyful in your own company. Um, but it's not easy to come by. Like technology has kind of filled the white space that we once had in our lives. And, and um, you know, like those empty moments, right? Waiting in line or um, waiting for a friend at a restaurant. We now just like pick up our phones and, and you know, connect that way. So I kind of think we need to practice solitude. And there's another person I'm influenced by um, who's Stephen Batchelor. He's a secular Buddhist, and he wrote a book called The Art of Solitude. And he says that, you know, we can learn to create a solitude in which we feel at home and grounded. Um, uh, and I could talk, you know, on and on about him, but that was already a mouthful. <laughs> Does that yeah, all make sense? Definitely. And, and so with the first two seasons, I feel like um, they came at a time where they still are relevant because, as you said, we're always looking at our screens, um, always seeking to connect, but still perpetually feel lonely. And so, um, so, so are you saying that solitude is the positive spin, whereas loneliness is like the neutral, neutral, negative side? Yes. I mean, I think that like loneliness is an inherently sad feeling. That doesn't mean it's without merit though. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that like we should try to eliminate loneliness. This is part of you know, the makeup of being human. Um, but yes, if I were to, to kind of define them, yes, there's, there's an inherent sadness to loneliness and solitude is a, there, there is a more positive bent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in a recent episode, you're talking about how we are getting to a habit of being alone, um, which I feel like is, must be kind of hard or confusing to grapple with as someone who thinks about loneliness, whether it's chosen or forced or not chosen. Um, and so, yeah. How are, you, how are you feeling about right now? And how do you think we're going to get through this? I, I worry about the echoes of mental health issues that will come out of this enforced kind of physical sequestering. Um, I worry about what uh, former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy calls the social recession, right? Like a fraying of social bonds that further unravel the longer we go without human interaction. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning that like while we're in an extreme situation right now, this fraying has been going on for a while. Like if you look at modern life, urbanization, a declining birth rate, a high divorce rate, um, the replacement of the multi-generational family with the nuclear family, um, you know, before the 19th century, even like daily living involved intricate webs of interdependence. We were designed to be interdependent. That's kind of when we're at our best. So there are ways in which we've been living for a while that don't, I think, set us up to be our healthiest, happiest selves. Um, and that's the kind of those things knocking around in my brain were uh, kind of what encouraged me to study loneliness through the show. That's not exactly the approach I take with the show, but that is kind of what led to it. So it's hard for me to say, you know, how how to get out of this. You know, I'm not, I'm not, 
a loneliness expert, right? I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm really just kind of a shepherd of, of a particular corner of this, of this conversation. Um, but I, I have concerns for sure. Yeah. And I have like, we get- you know, get more into things that I see people doing that, um, you know, I've, I've talked to some psychologists about what might be important to incorporate into your day to day right now, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Can we actually get back to the social recession? Can you explain um, what exactly is in recession and how this manifests? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would point you to to Murthy because it was sort of he coined the term, and and there are ways in which he can unpack it that I can't. But I mean, if you just think about all the interactions that we have with each other um, in our normal daily lives that make up a rich you know, web of, of a social fabric, right? Like when you would come to my house and we would test recipes, you know, it was very different from me being at home alone all day, um, with only communication through, you know, this Zencaster feed or, you know, through my iPhone with friends, like there, um, are just things that we get from also, I think about, you know, gatherings that help us, um, with things like, death you know i mean funerals are for the living they're not for the dead and this is this is a, a ritualized gathering that helps us almost you know it helps mark something in time it helps us know that that has happened that it's real um and we don't have that right now people are having funerals through zoom it's just not mm-hmm. um you know and there's so many examples of of you know things that I think belong in this constellation of what Murthy calls, you know, um, a, a social life and thus a social recession. Mm-hmm. But those are some yeah. of things that come to mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking like pre-quarantine time or even especially now, I feel like it really explains why we're so attracted to, you know, social media or even just texting or reconnecting with people that we've now lost touch with. I feel like it feels like the natural response. So in that way, like, do you think there's a lesser evil reading of our screens or are they contributing to the loneliness? I mean, I think that's what we've got right now. So it's really smart for people to be using them. It makes total sense that we are, you know, as we are a species deeply wired for connection, that we are you know, going a little extra with it (laughs) because we don't have (laughs) you know, the, uh, the, the in-person interaction. So we're using the tools we have at our disposal. Um, and sure, you know, I, I do think there's no stand in for, uh, in-person contact, but we, we can't have it right now. So we've got to work with what we've got, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of, um, have you been connecting with people from your past more so, or have you been decidedly not connecting with certain people? Um, how have you been keeping in touch or not? Ooh, um, I am pretty well equipped for stretches of time on my own. <laughs> I, um, so I, I feel pretty, uh, privileged in that way that I'm somebody who's comfortable with her alone time. And so, um, this isn't perhaps a, a challenge for me as much as it is for maybe like extroverts or other people. Um, that said, yeah, I'm, I'm still a human being <laughs> and, and I would say, uh, 
I have scheduled in phone calls in a way I didn't used to, right? Or scheduling in Zoom gatherings with with friends. Um, I think it's pretty it's pretty necessary. Um, I also I also have been falling in love, um, and I think that that has been a real joy, you know, at a time that otherwise would feel pretty scary and sad. Um, so that's been something that's nice. And I think I've devoted a lot of my social efforts to, to maintaining that relationship. Wait, can we talk about this? Are you okay with talking about this? (laughs) I want to know so much. (laughs) Um, what can I tell you? I mean, I look, I think it's interesting, like what's been happening for single people, right? Like there's, there's this rising interest in video dating, uh, so much so that like Hinge and Match.com and others are working to roll out new in-app video calling features. So I kind of wonder what we will learn in this time? Like what might we improve upon about the way we date? Mm -hmm. What doors might we open? There was this Fast Company article assessing all of this. And some executives at dating brands said that um, the the life of the trends we're observing now, specifically the use of video, may extend into post-pandemic dating world. Like video chats may be, they say, a way to kind of vet suitors and like see if you have a spark with someone and then commit to an hour or two with them you know, what video can do that text-only communication cannot. And the reason it can act as this in-between step is like allow you to observe someone's mannerisms and behavior to hear the tone of their voice. There's 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 this concept of an idealization bubble and it's easy to build up like an exaggeratedly optimistic version of someone through text. Uh, and it's so easy to be disappointed once you get in front of him and her. And so video is like one way to burst. Mm-hmm. This yeah, bubble, yeah. Right? So it's, it's interesting, like getting to know someone under these circumstances, what what can it do and, and what can it lead to? Mm-hmm. I'm definitely of the camp that loves text or I am idealizations of other people <laughs> that, that like makes up most of middle school for me. But I'm thinking now of the other large group of online daters who, you know, are like, I don't send more than three texts. I, if I you know match with someone, I just meet them and I let it happen. And so how do you think, do you think um, they're now going to be turned on to video or this is I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, I, it's interesting when I think about touch. This is not your question, but the thing that I'm that does bubble up to mind is like, you know, touch is a human need, right? Like, even with platonic relationships, touch and being close triggers a part of the brain and releases oxytocin, and like hugging reduces levels of stress hormones, and ultimately this this helps us fight infection even. So it's so odd that like the thing that normally keeps us fit is the thing that could hurt us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's concerning that our brains can't get this like hit of the love hormone that it likes. Um, but I just speaking from personal experience and, and, you know, when I share that this relationship is blossoming for me with some others, I, I hear that there's a similar thing going on. And I wonder if I've been casual, so casual kind of with my body and with touch before. And if I've if I've let sex like complicate or confuse me about my actual feelings for someone, right? And so yeah. in a way for me and for this relationship, the lack of touch has been the thing that has allowed us to lay this stronger foundation. And now ultimately, whenever I can, I want to touch him because I want to show him how I feel, which I can't say has been always my approach to sexual physical touch with my romantic partners, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm even thinking like, um, if not sex, I'm thinking like 
physical interaction with strangers right now, I feel like when I go out, I'm, I want to connect with people so badly, you know, like when, when I'm running and I like smile at another runner, I like love that. But then also we're all so afraid of each other. And so how do you feel like this will change our interactions with strangers? Um, even like through the advent of video, do you think video is going to make us more compassionate people? I don't know. I guess that's one thing I worry about if we go back to the social recession. I do think our fear right now, you know, we're like, we're all kind of looking at each other like parasites, you know, <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. like a judgment going around of people who aren't wearing masks. And um, and I've certainly seen a lot of compassion through the internet. So if we talk about, you know, I do think like in a way digital life is looking kinder um, because we're all collectively going through this one thing together. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to romanticize it. Obviously, like we're we're all um, kind of sailing the same sea, but we are not in the same boat, right? Um, mm-hmm. People who live below the poverty line are experiencing this much more harshly. Um, so I don't want to like romanticize it and say like, oh, we're all in this together because we're <laughs> feeling this in very different ways, right? Um, that said, this is unprecedented in the sense that like globally, we are all dealing with this. Um, and I do think that that's, can, can lead to this communal feeling and, um, and some kindness. But yeah, in terms of, in terms of interactions, it, it, it remains to be seen what will happen. Some people will jump into everyone's arms, you know, because they haven't had the contact and some people will be fearful. And, and I worry about, um, you know, if a large number of us are fearful, just what that's going to do. I, I don't know, casually touching people. I don't know how to put this in a way that doesn't sound odd, but it's such a joy of my life, right? I mean, I think we feel affirmed in a way, you know, mm-hmm. even just touching a friend's arm. Um, it's sort of, it solidifies something. And, um, and if we're all looking at each other like, potential disease carriers um, and we're fearful of being within a certain amount of feet of each other for a very long time. I just worry how that's going to change our whole social fabric, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about like, I'm already wistfully looking at photos of myself dancing with people. Some of the most connected, joyful nights of my life have been in dark, hot, sweaty, music thumping rooms in a basement in Brooklyn somewhere. (laughs) That is such an unsafe idea right now, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, I wonder what the tale will be like, you know, and, and for how long, um, we, we won't be dancing together, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't know if this is, if I'm giving you what you want. That's funny though. I do <laughs> see a lot of people dancing at home. I certainly have been dancing a lot at home because I think we just need movement, right? Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, sharing it on Instagram makes me feel like I'm doing with other people. Um, although I will say I've looked back at some of my like dancing videos and deleted them because I'm like, oh, I think my <laughs> what is appropriate has been warped here. Like I, I, you know, I do still have professional contacts who follow me on Instagram and maybe some of the moves that I'm putting out there, like the moves that I would be making with friends, you know, on a Saturday night in sort of like, quote unquote, private, not in private, but like not in front of editors of mine, <laughs> maybe don't need to be shared on this platform. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting because it's like, this is all we can do. You know, this is how we're reaching out to be with each other. But even now we have to be kind of curated or guarded with what we're, we're sharing. 
Yeah, I'm almost just coming around to that now. I think I was just like <laughs> letting it all fly for a couple months there. And now I'm like, okay, we don't know exactly how long this is going to go on. And I need to find a way to be my normal, um, you know, self and mm -hmm. maybe put some polish back into <laughs> how I'm representing myself here. LinkedIn can be for your, for your dancing videos. <laughs> you have different accounts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, back to the, the, we're all in our own ships on the same sea. Um, how has this time, um, a lot of alone time helped you and people around you re renegotiate, you know, harder relationships or friendships um, or even with family? Like, do you feel like, I know, like I've been listening to a lot of podcasts where people are like, I really needed to call that friend that I, you know, stood up five years ago and they're making up. And I personally haven't been doing that, but I, I'm just curious if you have felt that itch. Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say in terms of when I, how it's, how really looking at, how really swallowing the fact that we're all in different positions has affected me is, mm. you know, I think that maybe I've given lip service to privilege before, but this has really driven it home. Mm. Um, and I am so grateful that I have a home and that I am safe and um, that I'm, financially secure, at least for a little while longer, that I have work that I can do from home. Um, so that that's one response to your question, I guess. Um, and I'm interested, I don't know how much you like to share of your personal life on this show, but I'm interested in, in your answer to the same question. And it's hard not to think about race here and how you know, I can't imagine what it is like to be an Asian American person when our president is, has, you know, talked about this virus the way he has. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly I've been reading about what Asian Americans have been experiencing in certain parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've luckily um, been deflecting, been okay. Nothing too crazy has happened, but um, a friend, um, was like doing an Instagram live and he kept getting a lot of like bat emojis in response. And it was like, how, you know, how, how does this exist out there? Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's very scary. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I guess to clarify for your audience, I'm a white woman. So I, 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 um, <laughs> I ask, I don't have that particular experience myself. And, you know, I'm, I was reluctant to even ask you because I don't, perhaps even being asked the question is anxiety inducing. Right. But, um, mm. I, I, that is another way in which my privilege has come into, has, has, you know, become clear, at least in this particular situation. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and yeah, in terms of the other thing, I do think, um, Oh, this sounds, this sounds sort of mean, but I, in some ways I do think that it's, it's helped me, um, cut the fat a little. That's, that's a gross way to put it. But I mean, I, I think that I've been taking note of the people with whom I am purposefully connecting and are doing the same back, you know, people with whom there is 
mutual intentional outreach um, and and the people with whom that's not the case. And mm-hmm. you know, I was talking about this with a psychologist who focuses on anxiety and um, she was saying, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great time in our life to focus on the people that matter. Like maybe you spend less mental energy on people who don't really add much people who are maybe ambivalent, right. Or flaky, like um, maybe in other times we cut them a lot of slack, but you know, now's the time to really focus in on the people who are, who are there and who are showing up. Um, so, so that's definitely what I've been doing. So to answer your question, yes, I am like scheduling in phone conversations and, and even like, I think through social being purposeful about liking the posts of people who I genuinely like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and just trying to stop chasing, uh, the people I don't or the people who, who I don't seem to be hearing from, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in these, or with these new and re-energized friendships that you're, you're returning to, um, what are you noticing is keeping them sane or keeping them company right now? I mean, a lot of them, we have such different lives. I think most of the, most of those people, um, if I think about it, are partnered or have children. So I think Mm -hmm. they're experiencing stresses at home that I can't understand. Right. Um, mm-hmm. cause while I talk about single life being tricky, I mean, man, I think about people who, you know, romantic partners who are now forced to be with each other all day and working together in a small space. And I think that can put a lot of pressure on a relationship. Um, so I don't know. I think in some ways talking to me is keeping them sane <laughs> because, they, <laughs> because they're able to, uh, just kind of get out of their own, world and yeah yeah, some time with a with a girlfriend right um and talk about talk about things that aren't their families and talk about things that aren't coronavirus um and just be silly you know I think also holding on to any moments of joy I mean I think my cousin Polly um who was on an episode of the lonely hour she was such a great example for how to find pleasure in small things like making a pie or being delighted by one woman's funky shoes she saw on a walk. Like it's really about the small things um, right now. So I just think it's important to find joy where you can. And if you have the privilege of being safe at home with an internet connection, you know, take advantage of all that's going on. Like, um, as we said, the internet is looking kinder maybe. And I see a lot of people giving of their, time like Ryan Heffington, the choreographer or, you know, Diplo, uh, DJ, D nice, like all these DJs who are doing free sets on their Instagram lives, like chefs and food writers who are teaching followers how to cook. Like there's so much going on. Um, so I think if those things find you joy, then, then latch onto them and, and schedule those in too. You know, I mean, I think, um, one thing that same psychologists I talked to, um, said is that like, yeah, because we're not getting um, kind of social reinforcements per se from being in person with other people, it's really important to focus on activities that bring you pleasure and will kind of like counteract that lack, lack of dopamine. Um, so, you know, it's it, they could be guilty pleasures like 
Is it a dating reality show? Is it baking? Is it dancing? For me, it certainly has been dancing, although we talked about my needing to curb that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we need to make sure we're doing those things every day, like schedule them in to your calendar if need be um, mm-hmm. and be purposeful. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julia. Oh, thanks. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.